Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. Every year, hundreds of thousands of economics graduates enter the job market, and they are in demand. Businesses, government, and the NGO sector openly advertise positions for economists. Because there is a discipline with institutional anchorage and professional journals, economists can claim to have mastered a recognisable set of skills, including the ability to build econometric models, analyse data, and recommend policies. In Ricardo's time, however, there was no degree in economics or political economy, and even a course of lectures on political economy was hard to find. In fact, in Britain, a specialist degree in economics would have to wait for the 20th century. This makes perfect sense given what we have discovered, that before political economy there were a series of rival traditions, including William Petty's political arithmetic, Thomas Munn's Council on Trade, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Lament for Lost Nobility. Even eminent writers, such as Adam Smith and Thomas Robert Malthus, were building their arguments using the materials of moral philosophy. Given this situation, the question arises, how did one acquire knowledge in political economy in the early 19th century? The answer, in Britain at least, was that one read Smith's Wealth of Nations and Malthus's Essay on Population. In other words, political economy was a public knowledge, not circulating in elite institutions, but in popular texts and in parliamentary debate. This is one of the key reasons why political economists did not enjoy expert status, at least as we understand that term today. There was no process of accreditation of the same type that regulated established professions, such as lawyers and ministers. This left the field of political economy open to ambitious interventions, and this is exactly what David Ricardo attempted with our text today, The Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, published in 1817. It was written for those with a knowledge of the field, and it is an exceedingly demanding text. As several contemporary commentators have noted, parts of the text are at least as difficult as any of the technical material published in economics today. Undoubtedly, the hardest-going chapter is the first, simply titled On Value. As Terry Peach tells us, the circumstances of the text's composition partly explain its difficulty. The first chapter uh, on value in the first edition of the principles was a complete disaster. What appears to have happened is this, that particularly in debate with Malthus after the publication of the essay on profits, Ricardo came to realise that his approach to the subject of value, exchangeable value, was incorrect. And he came up with a theory that at one time he'd actually rejected the bare sort of outline of which we can find in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, the idea that relative values are determined by relative quantities of labour, the pure labour theory of values it's come to be known. And it seems that he initially drafted a first chapter on value, which simply set out the pure labour theory of value. He then continued to draft chapters up to and including the chapter on foreign trade, but he then realised there was a problem. He wrote to James Mill about it, explaining he'd had a very sleepless night because he'd come to see that this pure labour theory of value actually required modification. He asked Mill what he should do. Mill basically said, get on, write the rest of the book. He was desperate that Ricardo should finish the manuscript. And that's what Ricardo did. When he'd completed the manuscript on Mill's advice, he went back to the chapter on value, and it seems he inserted into the existing draft material which set out the so-called modifications to the labour theory. 
This, as I've said, resulted in a disaster. Because what you get in the first chapter, in the first edition, is both the outline of the pure labour theory of value and, in effect, compelling reasons why the theory doesn't hold. Massive contradiction. What was the pure labour theory of value? Today we tend not to distinguish between the value of a good and its price. When we ask, for example, what's the value of an apple, we normally mean how much must be paid to obtain it. If the price of apples changes because of a temporary shortage, then we are happy enough to say that the value of apples has also changed. This was not the case for Ricardo. He distinguished between value and price and assumed that in the short run, prices would fluctuate, but that in the long run, prices would move towards their natural values. But what determined value? In Ricardo's pure labour theory of value, relative prices were explained by the relative quantities of labour required to produce a good. If the labour required to produce a peach was twice that required to produce an apple, then peaches should sell for twice as much as apples. Whatever wages were paid, and whether they went up or down, did not matter to relative prices because they were determined by quantities of labour. This claim was a direct legacy of Ricardo's argument in the essay that we reviewed in the previous episode. We saw that Ricardo treated the difficulty of production on the land as the key fact of economic life. His notion of the quantity of labour as a measure of the difficulty of production was an attempt to extend this maxim to all commodities. Only some commodities are produced with land, but all commodities are produced with labour. So far, so good. The great difficulty came from the nature of capital. If a good were produced with capital and labour, then how did the labour theory work? Ricardo found a partial solution by treating capital as accumulated labour, as labour performed in the past and stored. A machine, for example, might be made with the labour of 100 people and produce 100 tins, in which case each tin could be thought of as produced by one person and thus exchange in a ratio of one to one for other goods made with the labour of one person. The key point is that Ricardo used labour as a way to homogenise what we would call input costs. This solution broke down once time was introduced into the analysis. If human labour receives its return in wages, then we can expect that wages are paid in the short term, say, every day, or every week, or every month. But the returns to capital investment normally occur over longer time horizons. A machine might take a year to be constructed, during which time it would produce no return, and then begin to produce the same quantity for 10 years before being retired. Furthermore, wages were paid over the short term depending on the state of the labour market, while profits were a residual that remained after costs were paid. So, Ricardo could homogenise labour and capital by treating them both as labour, but he could not homogenise their returns, wages and profits, because profits, as a residual, would change depending on the level of wages. As wages went up, profits would fall. The disaster for Ricardo was that exchange ratios could no longer be explained by reference to quantities of labour alone, for now ratios of fixed to circulating capital also played a role. In the face of such complexities, Ricardo's arguments became increasingly convoluted and unsatisfying, both to him and to his critics. Ricardo would wrestle with the difficulties in the two subsequent editions of his book, without success. Indeed, Ricardo was preoccupied with value up until his untimely death, in 1823. In conclusion, two things can be said. The first is that Ricardo's attempt to redefine the field with his book is evidence of the open and uncertain status of political economy. It was a discipline jostling for a place, 
with its sights set on being the premier science for lawmakers. We know that this prize was ultimately attained, but in Ricardo's lifetime, this was far from certain. The second and closely related point is that because political economy was so open, it was also incredibly unstable, capable of being transformed with new concepts and techniques. This is nowhere clearer than in Ricardo's treatment of value, a seemingly metaphysical substance capable of exerting gravitational force on something as quotidian and messy as market prices. It was exactly this treatment that Malthus would attack in his rival work, the subject of the next episode. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought, written and spoken by me, Dr Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Terry Peach. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyebi.